0: Stage four cancer patients should not be denied access. The care should not be delayed because they have to go through a failed treatment regimen first.
1: This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest today is Jennifer Carlson, the James Associate Vice President for External Relations and Advocacy in the Office of Health Sciences. I usually talk to James scientists and physicians about the latest and best cancer research and life-saving treatments, so today will be a little bit different. Jennifer's job is to help all these great James researchers and physicians push the needle forward and also to make cancer treatment more accessible to everyone, especially underserved populations that struggle to get access to good health care and screenings. And we'll also talk a little bit about the added challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Jennifer.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me today.
1: It's great to hear. It's great that you're here and to learn about something a little bit different than we usually talk about. So your title, Vice President for External Relations and, and Advocacy, What does that mean? Sort of explain your your role here at the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center.
0: I advise and work with our senior leaders on all matters regarding health policy and strategically positioning um, us in the enterprise in the external uh, environment. And so my office gathers and disseminates information on federal, state, and local laws and regulatory matters. And we educate our opinion leaders on um, priorities that align with our strategic plan. And we advance strategies to promote priorities for OSU within all levels of, of state, federal, and local government. Um, and so it's, it's an exciting position, and, and I'm really pleased to be working at Ohio State.
1: So you mentioned that one of your goals is to establish priorities. So what are, and what are a couple of those for the James? I've been hearing a lot lately about your expanded cancer drug take-back program.
0: And so over the past few years, we've worked with the State Board of Pharmacy on new rules governing the operation of these drug repository programs. And that allowed for, at the time, a narrow collection of of unused medications. And those medications um, were placed at pharmacies, hospitals, nonprofit clinics, and then they could be redispensed to patients who couldn't afford the cost of medications. And so earlier this year, uh, the state of Ohio stood with us, um, the leaders of the James Cancer Hospital and Soloff Research Institute, to announce the modifications of that particular re- regulation. And so what we wanted to get at more specifically was the donation of orally administered cancer medications and other drugs used to treat side effects of cancer care. And um, what we specifically wanted to get at were the drugs that were previously opened and in the physical possession of an intended patient because that was not allowed under the regulation. You can only imagine you know the monthly costs of medications. It can be in the thousands of dollars for patients. And that's why financial assistance and the new medication program is so important. Um, it's, it's quite common for patients to switch to a new medication or change doses, and that results in wasted medication that currently must be disposed.
1: I and mean, so, so that, this- that means thrown out.
0: Yeah, right, right, and mm-hmm. and that could be complicated too, especially when you, when you're dealing with, um, for example, chemotherapy agents. But this new program, patients with these. Unneeded medications now can donate them for redispensing to patients who can't afford them, uh, can't afford the cost. And so these donated medications, we closely inspect them. Um, it has to be within the expiration dates. Uh, it has to be stored uh, according to how they're being uh, prescribed and otherwise untampered with. And so the drugs undergo a very rigorous, specific inspection process by one of our pharmacists, and then they're stored in a separate inventory uh, for when a patient is deemed financially eligible and approved to have these donated drugs dispensed. And so we have a team of, you know, fantastic pharmacists, individuals reaching out to our patients to say, "Hey, we've got we've got this bolus of of you know product here that." Um, we know you're a perfect fit, and we want to be able to help you in this time of need. Um, so so we've started this program. We have uh, at least two oral therapies right now that we've used in a variety of oncology disease states. And so we're establishing best practices, and we're intending to take out and expand the repository in the near future to serve all patients across the spectrum and that may have a financial need. And so really appreciated the, the strong port- partnership and collaboration we've had with the State Board of Pharmacy in the state of Ohio and Department of Health and making this an innovative patient care model possible. And now, now we're also pushing the word out and helping to educate other providers across the state, across the nation, And saying that this repository program to assist patients is is well intended and is something that should be implemented across across the nation, so we're pleased.
1: Now, are you one of the first, or even the first, to do this in Ohio?
0: We are. We those. That's one of our points of pride. We are one of the first. um, We are the first in in the state of Ohio to do this. We felt that this was an important. uh, thing to do for the community, for cancer patients. And so we take pride in what we've been able to accomplish and provide to our patients.
1: It, it's interesting because over the past couple of years in talking to people, the James has been the first in the state and even the nation to do a lot of things like the Lynch um, screen mm-hmm. program across the whole state and now the first to do this pill exchange program. And these can serve as, I'm guessing that you hope, as national models that other states are going to do as well.
0: That's true. I mean, we've, we've had this wonderful history of being um, first in class and advocating and promoting strategies that help our cancer patient. We can point to several different initiatives, access to cancer clinical trials. When I first got to Ohio State, There were broad insurance exclusionary provisions uh, that prohibited patients even though they were eligible, screened. Uh, uh, We knew that standard of care wasn't working for them, wanted to put them onto a clinical trial yet we, there were barriers to access. And um, we were able to break down those barriers through state and federal legislation that, you know, that's just one more point of pride that we use. We've been able to disseminate and push out into the communities this best practice where, um, you know, you have to make sure that insurers understand that clinical trials, the only way you're gonna be able to change standard of care is to advance clinical trials And that insurance companies, when we put our patients onto trial, we're not asking you to pay for anything more than what you normally would pay for. And that would be the routine costs of the doctor visits, the blood tests, and all the clinical trial testing, which could be a pill a day. That's what would be charged off to the university or the um, the sponsor of the trial. so that that again is is just another a point to how we look for ways to to further advance policies that that help our patients and 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 we look for ways that we can amplify our successes and how we've been trailblazers at Ohio State University.
1: Yeah, and just talking to you, I don't think I realize the extent of the different groups you need to talk to. Uh, insurance companies, state and federal regulators, the FDA, um, all these people are involved in creating the policies that impact anyone who's diagnosed with cancer.
0: That's right. And most people don't understand that until they're in the middle of a crisis and their their family members or themselves are are hitting the James and they, they, they don't understand the, the the nuances and the complexities of their their insurance and and this is where um, you know we we take a, a broad brush look at all policies and and um, in my position I have the ability to work hand in glove with our elected officials with our regulators and we try to have those conversations early on so that they understand the nuances and the, and the benefits of, of what we're trying to promote.
1: I feel like because the James is so well known throughout the state and the state regulators are here in Columbus that I'm, I'm, I think, and hope they understand the importance of pushing the needle forward.
0: They do. We, we spent a lot of time having personal conversations with our elected officials in, you know, I even point to, you know, during this trying time during during COVID-19, when most individuals are having Zoom conversations like we are today, we, we for the past several months, we've been having informational briefings just to keep our elected officials up to date on what's going on. And, and in fact, um, I do have staff going down to the Statehouse this week to talk about a really important uh, piece of legislation that we're advancing on the house side, which is the stage four bill. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that as well.
1: Well, great. That's on our list. And I, and I've heard about this and it's a, it's an, and again, it's an example of how the James is a a state and national leader and a new thing that's going to help people. But first we're going to take a quick break. And then we'll be right back with Jennifer to learn more about the stage four cancer bill that, is i think she's going to tell us how it's going to save some lives a revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the james we're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it simply put there is no routine lung cancer that's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer yours at the james we go beyond the routine to prevent detect treat and cure your lung cancer to learn more call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Jennifer Carlson, the James Associate Vice President for External Relations and Advocacy in the Office of Health Sciences, and Jennifer, you were about to tell us about this stage 4 cancer bill and fill us in on where it's at in the in the state legislature and what it's going to do to help people.
0: Sure. Thank you. You might find it surprising to know that insurers can deny care even though a physician knows the drug mandated by the insurer will be ineffective based on the specific patient or the known side effects of the drug regimen. When We learned about these challenges uh, that were popping up uh, from an insurance perspective. We started to have conversations with our government agencies, um, Department of Health, Department of Insurance, Department of Medicaid, various cancer-centric organizations, clinical associations, and what ultimately led into the development and the introduction of the stage four cancer bill which was announced at the James earlier this year, along with Senators Bob Hackett and Senator Herschel Craig. And that bill is Senate bill 252. And so what it would do is it would prohibit the use of fail first requirements or step therapy.
1: Fail Uh, fail first meaning, this is the way it's been done in the past. You've got to use this drug, even though the James doctor, who's an expert and knows this patient and what they need, says, no, we don't want to use drug A. We want to use drug B. We think it'll be better.
0: Precisely. And and so at the James, I think it's really important to note that approximately 20% of our patients are diagnosed with stage four disease. And what that means is their cancers has spread from the original site of the cancer to other parts of the body. So it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's more complex. So um, there's an exciting time in cancer treatment because there's new targeted therapies. And in some cases making metastatic disease, a chronic disease. However, you know, the opportunities to achieve that state requires patients receive the right to treatment at the right time. So Bill 252 would ensure the coverage of a drug to treat metastatic cancer or its associated conditions or side effects is not dependent upon failure to successfully respond to a different and in some cases less expensive drugs. So it would allow for a drug that's approved by the FDA for treatment of the type of cancer the patient has, or a drug that's included in the National Comprehensive Cancer Center Network Drugs and Biologic Compendium. So essentially, the bill permits chemotherapy use that's consistent with best practices for the treatment of cancer as supported by peer-reviewed medical literature without delaying a patient's care to require them to fail A prior chemotherapy medicine. But typically there's a reason why the physician uh, chooses one treatment over another and it's based on the patient's unique cancer or the unique side effect of the treatment. As long as that is consistent with the FDA guidelines as we talked about or national guidelines like the NCCN best practices, an insurer should not be able to override the physician selection of the drug reg- regimen. So so this bill would make it very clear um, that if it's offered within um, the insurance coverage, that, that stage four cancer patients should not be denied access. The care should not be delayed because they have to go through a failed first uh, treatment regimen first. And so The bill is pending right now in the Ohio House, and we look forward to its passage before the end of the legislative session this year. And um, we're pleased to be working on, yet again, another trailblazer legislative initiative.
1: So another thing, um, since we first scheduled this a couple months ago, there's been quite a few changes in the world through COVID-19. We're doing this remotely. I'm sure you're doing a lot of your work remotely. How is COVID-19 sort of changed what you do, and also how are you using it, or not using it, but what are you doing to sort of make things easier in this difficult times to interact with and help patients?
0: A good example is when we knew we had to roll back on optional surgical procedures, but knowing that there were, there were some some procedures that we continued to need to do within, within the James. Um, but we also needed to, to be able to have those, those really important follow-up um, clinical discussions um, that our, our physicians needed to have to, the, with their patients. And so we quickly mobilized, we had conversations with the administration, both on the, the national and state level to say telehealth services, is 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 critically important, um, yet we need those flexibilities. We need the flexibility to be able to have conversations like you and I are having today, um, face-to-face interactions with our patients um, to do it at a broader scale. So back in February, just to give you some perspective, um, um, monthly, we were having about you know, 50 telehealth um, encounters and those were... Telehealth, um, um, you know, consults that our, our our providers were having with our physicians. Now we're having over twenty three hundred per month, and so that gives you a sense and the magnitude of how we've been able to to change care and it and allow for that. Cr- critically important dialogue between our, our providers and our patients. And, and it's also a safe way to provide care because we want to make sure that only those individuals that have to come into our hospitals or our ambulatory care centers um, are coming in. And, and and if you don't need to come in at this point in time, we want to continue to be able to provide services through telehealth. So it's been interesting. Um, you know, we, we have daily uh leadership calls, um um talking about you know the care that's needed, the testing, the modeling, the forecasting, um, not only as it relates to COVID, but how do you how can we take to scale and make sure that the other resources that might have been potentially put on pause gets brought up in a a quick fashion. because we're we need to make sure that those services are are out there and, and open to our patients
1: during this time. Yeah, on, Dave Cohn was just on the podcast a couple of episodes ago to talk about how it's time to get back for people to get back on their track for screenings, how mm-hmm. vital that is. So I think that's that's I think that's an example of what you were just talking about.
0: Absolutely. Um, we wanna make sure that nothing pops out um, on the other end, um, you know, when you think about um, instilling consumer confidence. And so we've spent a lot of time uh, working on messaging, outreach to our patients, but outreach to also to the administration and our elected officials to, so that they understand, you know, we're, we're open, we're prepared. Uh, we have the right screening mechanisms in place um, to protect our faculty, our staff, our patients, and, and so that that's really important. But to your point that David likely has has mentioned, you know, screenings are down. Um, you know, we've we are trying to amplify that uh, we are, we have safe facilities, we want our patients to come in. To make sure that they're getting their, you know, breast cancer screenings, their colonoscopies, all those important um, front line of defenses before things could go um, turn in turn in a different way for our patients. It's really important. Right. We know that children children's inoculations, for example, are down about sixty percent, mm-hmm. and so it's it's really important that that government providers all work together to make sure that um, our, our patients are coming back for these important uh, screenings.
1: I like to ask this question to doctors who deal directly with patients. And while you deal indirectly with patients, I think I'm going to ask you the same question. What drives you, motivates you, has committed you to, to dedicating your, your career to do this?
0: Well, first of all, I'm a po- public policy junkie, and so that that drives me to to really be interested in all, all kinds of issues um, pending in front of Congress and the General Assembly, and and also developing public policy. But I think more importantly, it's it's you know the the James is an amazing place, and we have so much to offer our cancer patients and I'm driven by the progress and that we make and the incredible uh, individuals that I work with and um, the, you know, the hard work that is done within the community. And it, it really, it, it, it goes back to the patients. Um, patients really motivate me and, and, and I know that we can do more uh, to help them and especially our most vulnerable patients. And that's why I love doing my, my job.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that. And I, I think to me, at least, the thing that came through pretty clear is that the, the two words you just mentioned, public policy are just more important than people realize in getting all this amazing research that's being done at the James and elsewhere around the world to patients. You need great public policy and you need need people like you pushing it forward. So thanks for doing that.
0: Thank you. Yes. You know, I'd love to do whatever I can to make sure that we spread the word and grow more informed advocates out there. Okay.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solove Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.